Uh, as I've said, I don't know, uh, for at least a month, maybe a little longer, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount right now. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. And in that sermon, Jesus describes what life is like in his kingdom. Jesus came as a king to announce the kingdom of God that was at hand. And he called people to repent and believe this good news and enter the kingdom of God. And what we've been seeing is that the the Sermon on the Mount helps us understand what life under his administration is meant to look like. And last week we started into these, uh, these various laws and, and uh, we started with a big one with the, uh, the, the law against murder. You have heard it said, the Lord uh, Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And we get, uh, we get this explanation of murder, but what we find out is, is that Jesus' definition of murder is far different than what we would define murder as. We simply see it as kind of, uh, well, I think, a, I think a legal description would be some sort of unlawful, premeditated, bleh, premeditated killing of one person by another person. That's, that's murder. But what we saw last week is that Jesus says, you can't even kill people in your mind or you're committing murder. If you hold resentment towards another person, you're committing murder in your heart. If you're holding grudges, if you have a a hate on for someone else, you uh, are in danger of committing murder. Even more than that, if you just dismiss people, if you, if you look at people and they're, they're, they, you see them but you don't really care about them, you're condescending toward them, you want nothing to do with them, you are in danger of committing murder. And if you, Treat someone as beneath you. For example, let's say you call someone a moron. That's what Jesus says in uh, this passage when he says, you fool. If you call someone an idiot, you call someone a moron, you, you undercut and undermine their own sense of self-worth and confidence, you are in danger of committing murder. The reason is, is because you, in doing that, you're not honoring the image of God in that person. One of the things we need to remember, friends, is that every human being that has ever been placed on this earth is infinitely precious, is infinitely valuable simply because they have life, simply by virtue of their existence. It has nothing to do with their utility. It has nothing to do with their intellectual capacity. It has nothing to do with whether or not they contribute anything to society. Simply because they live, they are valuable. That was last week. And what we saw, obviously, is that God's standard, Jesus' standards of what it is to keep his law are astoundingly high. They are almost ridiculous, if you think about it. These prohibitions that Jesus makes are, are utterly comprehensive. And you, you, when you unpack them and you understand what he's actually saying, you've got to say to yourself, man, this is impossible. This is utterly unrealistic. How, is, how can God expect this of us? But, but think for a second. Do you not at least feel the rightness of these laws? Do you not at least feel the, the, the correctness of them. What I mean is, is, is don't you think, wow, if, if we actually lived this way, 
as human beings and in relationship with one another? Don't you think that, that that's how it should be? It's not maybe how it is, but that's at least how it should be. Everybody is deserving of respect and dignity simply because they exist. Imagine if that criteria was applied to social media. What if everybody on Twitter thought like this? It would be a wonderful place, wouldn't it? So when we, when we say ah, impossible or we say unrealistic or we just hate these rules, we hate them because they're right. They're right. Now what we're going to look at today is that the law in the Bible, God's law, is far more than just prohibitions. It's more than, than saying don't do this or don't do that. With every command not to do something comes a command to do something. There's, there's not just a prohibition, but there is a, an exhortation towards something. So, for example, the Ten Commandments say, you shall not steal. Okay? Don't steal. Don't take another person's stuff. You say to yourself, all right, I get it. But when the Bible says, do not steal, it's also at the same time saying, you need to be generous. Generous with your material wealth, whether it's stuff or, or just cash or whatever. It's not enough to say, I don't take somebody else's stuff. You need to be generous with, with your stuff. And the reason we know that is, is because whenever in the Bible someone is convicted of not being generous, God, God accuses them of robbery. It's not just stinginess. It's not just like you're an Ebenezer Scrooge. No, no, no. You're a robber. And so in our text this morning, Jesus expands on his prohibition against murder, okay? And he goes beyond the prohibitions to the positive. And so in verse 23 and 24, he says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offered your gift. In other words, it's not enough to just stop at the negative. You need, Jesus says, to pursue reconciliation in all of your relationships if you are going to behave as a member of my kingdom. Because you see, Jesus came into this world for that very purpose. Jesus came into this world to reconcile us to God. The Bible says that in and of ourselves, by nature, we are born as adversaries of God. We are born as enemies of God. We are born as people who raise a fist in rebellion against God. We want nothing to do with him. We don't want to submit to him. We don't want to love him. We don't want to obey him. We want to be in charge of our own lives. And Jesus comes into this world and he says to us, if you live that way, in charge of your own life, you are leading a life towards self-destruction. You may experience here on this earth some success. You may experience some joy. You may experience some wealth and some satisfaction. You may say to yourself, it's all well and good. I'm living a good life. I don't need religion and I don't need God. But there is a day that is coming where God will reveal his justice before you and you will stand naked before his righteous holy eye. That's what the Bible teaches. And when that day comes, I think I'm skipping to the end of the sermon here. Uh-oh. Well, I'll just have to tell you twice, okay? When that day comes, when that day comes, if you look to Jesus 
as the one who has lived on your behalf, that life that you were unable to live because you could not keep God's perfect commands no matter how hard you tried, but you trusted in his perfect life and you trust in the fact that he, as the God-man, not just a human being, but God in the flesh, that he actually took your sin on his shoulders when he went to that cross. When you do that, you are reconciled to God. God no longer looks at you as a murderer. He no longer looks at you as a sexually immoral person. He no longer looks at you as a selfish, greedy person. He looks at you as his child, who he is so proud of, that he delights in so much. And he says, look, if you're part of my kingdom then, you are pursuing the same thing that I pursued. I pursued you in reconciliation, and now I want you to pursue others in reconciliation. We're going to look at four things from this passage this morning. We're going we're to look at who we're supposed to reconcile to, when we're supposed to reconcile to them, how we're supposed to do it, and then I'll repeat point four, which I just gave you at the beginning of the sermon. I don't know why that happened, but whatever. Why it's so important. Of course, I've let the cat out of the bag. Now you know why it's so important, but that's okay. Let's have a look together. First of all, at who we are supposed to reconcile to. Jesus says in verse 23, he says, um, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Okay, who's your brother or sister? Now, true, your siblings, <laughs> they're, they're your brothers and sisters, but Jesus is using this language to describe other believers, other Christians, other people that you are in, in Christian fellowship with. But scholars say that it's actually even a little bit broader than that, that Jesus is talking about anybody that you are in a personal relationship with. It could be close friends, it could be good neighbors, it could be co-workers, people that you know well have a personal relationship with. God calls us to reconcile to those people. And, it, you know, an, an example of this is in Psalm 133, verse 1. It says, how good and pleasant is it in God, when God's people live in unity. So, yeah, it makes sense. Maybe you're saying, okay, that does make sense. Of course, the people I'm in re relationship with, I should get along with them. I shouldn't get in fights with them, etc. But then look at verse 25. Because then Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary <laughs> who is taking you to court. Now, other translations are a little bit different. Sometimes it's opponent. Sometimes it's accuser. But certainly uh, the idea here is not someone that you are in unity with, someone that you know personally. It could be someone that you don't know personally at all, but they are, they are in, you are in some kind of relationship with them and you are at odds with them. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that we need to be ready to reconcile with everyone. Everyone that we have contact with, everyone that we have any kind of relationship with, whether it's a business relationship or a friendship or anything in between, we need to be ready to reconcile to everyone. Romans 12 verse 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Not just the people you like. Or the people like you say, well, I have to live at peace with this person because, you know, we, we eat at the same dining room table. And so I'm kind of stuck having to figure out a way to get along with my brother or my sister or my parents. You need to be ready to be at peace with the people that when you go to school, when you go to, uh, uh, to your classes and you sit down and you think, oh, I can't stand that teacher. 
And you think to yourself, well, I'm going to be graduating pretty soon and I won't have to see him again. So I'm not going to bother. That colleague that takes their lunch, you know, you know what time they take their lunch and what time they use the microwave in the lunchroom. And you always make sure that you come by 15 minutes later so that you don't have to bump into them and have an encounter with them because, frankly, they just annoy you and irritate you like nobody's business. Jesus says that we are not to choose who we will be at peace with and reconcile to. We are to be at peace with and reconcile to everyone as far as we are able to make that happen. And that will come up a little bit more later on. That's the first thing. Who? Now, <clears throat> when? When should you reconcile to the people you're in bad relationships with? Simply put, as soon as possible is when. Jesus uses this really interesting illustration, right? He says, you know, you come to the temple, you can make your sacrifice, go to the altar, but then you go, oh, wait, I remember. I'm, I have a relationship that's falling apart. I need to go fix that. And he says, drop everything, take off, and go reconcile to that person. And we might go, hmm. That's interesting, but we don't even realize what Jesus is actually asking of us. There was only one place that you could make a sacrifice during Jesus' time, and that was at the temple. So that's Jerusalem. So imagine you're a good Jewish boy or Jewish girl, woman, man, woman, and you want to make a sacrifice to God because that is something that the law calls you to do. And so you take your lamb or maybe you don't take anything with you. But you leave your village and you take the three-day journey to Jerusalem to go to the altar to make your sacrifice. Now when you get there, there's all kinds of people there. It's, it's like Woodstock. People are lined up to make their sacrifice. And so you queue up, you get your lamb or you get your two doves or whatever. And you line up and you queue up and you get ready to go to the altar. And it's your turn, and you've been standing there for hours, okay, in line. After days of travel to get there. And just about your turn is come. They're, 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 they're pulling your paper clip. They're looking at your number on the, on the little flashy thing. And you say to yourself, oh man, wait a minute. I am not right with my friend, with my parent, with my spouse, with my whatever. Jesus says... Drop your sacrifice, get on your donkey, if you're rich enough to afford one, or whatever, and go and make the three-day journey back and reconcile with that person from your village, then turn around and do it all again and come back and worship. And it's actually a ridiculous picture, ridiculous thing that Jesus is saying purposely. He's making the people say, this is nuts. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to drive home the urgency of reconciliation. No matter how inconvenient it is, he says you need to reconcile with one another. You must keep your relationships in repair. And, and I'm very fortunate to have had an experience where, where I understand the, 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 the magnitude of this. Because I went to Florida last week or two weeks ago during March break doing a wedding there. And my family and I, we went to Universal Studios. And it was like Woodstock. I could not believe the sea of people there. And I had to wait over an hour under the beating sun for a butterbeer. Over an hour just for a butterbeer. I wanted to go on Escape from Gringotts, which is like the awesomest experience. 160-minute wait now imagine if I said, I'm going to put in the time. I'm going to go to that one 
experience, that one ride at Universal, and I'm about to get in, and all of a sudden I go, I had a fight with so-and-so back home, and they're upset with me. Am I honestly supposed to leave, escape from Gringotts, get on a terrible Lynx Air flight back to Toronto, which will probably be delayed four times before I can even fly here, and make sure that I'm all reconciled with those people? It sounds absolutely ridiculous, but the picture is being painted to demonstrate that Jesus is not fooling around. Jesus is not saying to you, you know, it'd be nice if you guys would all just get along. He's saying this is actually extremely urgent. This is unbelievably important in your life that you keep short accounts with the people in your lives. Keep your relationships in repair. That's the urgency. You come to church. Could you imagine you come to church? And I'm preaching away. And all of a sudden I go, whoa, just before communion? Uh Uh-oh. And I come down and I walk up to wherever Jessica's sitting. And I have to have a conversation with her. Ask her to forgive me or something. Because uh, I can't continue. I have to drop what I'm doing and make sure that we are reconciled. As soon as you can. Make it right, friends. Make it right. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't, don't put things off till it's better time, more convenient time. When you think they're, they're in a better place or you're in a better place, as soon as you know that you can reconcile, go and reconcile. And notice, Jesus does not say if you have sinned against a brother or sister, go and be reconciled to them. He says if they have something against you, There's many of us who would say, you know, when I've done something wrong, when I have committed a sin against a a person, hurt them or whatever, yeah, I should own that, and I should make it right, and I should go apologize, say sorry, whatever. I, I get that. But you get to decide whether you should reconcile. And Jesus is saying, uh uh. It's not actually about how you feel about the situation, it's about how they feel about the situation. They might have a right. To be upset with you. They might have a right to be frustrated with you. But they might not. They might have no right to be upset with you. Maybe they're, they're t- making a mountain out of a molehill or, or, or whatever. But, but regardless, Jesus says the onus is on you to seek reconciliation. And it's interesting. In the Bible, it's always your move when it comes to reconciliation. Because in Matthew 18, Jesus says... If your brother or sister has sinned against you, go and point out their sin to them. And uh, if they listen to you, then you have won them over. So in this situation, they think they, you, that, 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 that you've done something and they've got a problem with you. It's your move. And in Matthew 18, you've got a problem with them. And guess what? It's your move. My inclination, I can tell you, is if somebody has wronged me and someone has hurt me, I am happy to wait for them to approach and share their repentance and their confession with me so that I can graciously grant my forgiveness. But Jesus says, no, 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 you go and seek reconciliation with them. You've got a friend at church and you know that they've got something against you and maybe you think to yourself, it is so silly. You know what the thing is and you're like, it's trivial, it's dumb. I didn't... 
I didn't call them back. They called, left a message, I forgot, I didn't call them back, now they're upset with me. And what you want to do is you want to just say, ah, leave it. Like, don't bother. Don't, don't stir up the hornet's nest, right? Or you minimize it and you try to admit it's not that big a deal. They're making a mountain out of a molehill. They are so sensitive. Regardless, friends, you got to go. It is always your move. And so that means you got to move as soon as you can move. Okay? That's when. Now, how? How do you go to, to be reconciled? And, and the clue is actually Jesus' illustration of worship. He's using this illustration of a Jewish person at the temple about to make a sacrifice. Now, what did Jews make sacrifices for? They did it as a reminder of sin. That they were sinners, that they deserved God's wrath, and they deserved his judgment, but they were making this sacrifice as a symbol of God's forgiveness of their sin, that they are forgiven. And it's within that context that they remember that someone has something against them. In other words, it's the gospel that, that demands that we inform our... No. What am I trying to say? It's the gospel that informs the context within which we are to reconcile with other people. What do I mean by that? I mean you have to go in the spirit of the gospel. See, the gospel tells us, on the one hand, that we are big, big sinners. That we are way worse than we're even willing to admit. And so it's very, very humbling to, to consider yourself and, and to think, you know, I am a big sinner. But when you go with that mentality, realizing that the gospel tells you, yes, I am a big sinner, then you are open to the possibility that maybe you did wrong someone. Maybe you did it out of simply uh, being uh, inconsiderate, but it's nevertheless uh, an offense. And this person may have legitimate reasons to be upset with you. You will be honest, you see, you'll be honest of what you're capable of doing. Because often what we do is, is when someone tries to point out a problem that they have with us, we want to become defensive. It, we hear that someone is upset with us, and immediately, I can tell you, I do this all the time, because I, I don't know if I get more people upset with me than other people. I don't know. But when you're a pastor, you know, when people have issues with church or whatever, it comes to you or it comes about you or something like that. And I tell you, man, I hear the littlest criticism of what's going on, and I immediately jump into defensive mode. And I'm a pretty good arguer, and so I put together my seven points, and I say to myself, here are all the reasons they're wrong. Bang, 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 bang. Jessica hates it, because I'm, I'm, it's, it's a terrible thing to be married to someone like that. But that's how we move very often. We want to dismiss that person's claim or their beef against us. But a gospel person, you see, a gospel person is open. Not defensive. Jesus brings up the context of worship because, because in confession, in recognizing your sinfulness, that you are more wicked than you ever dared admit. When you do that, it, it opens us up and makes us able to repent. And I know that doesn't make sense to you, but, but it will in, in a moment. Because it's when you do that, even though we, we do this at church, right? We, we, in, in every service, we, we have a period of time where we confess our sin. And there are people who have, who have asked me, like, why do we do that? I go to other churches and, you know, maybe you say a quick prayer or something. But you guys, like, read something. And then you pray. And then you sing. And then you read something again. And then maybe you sing again. It takes a big chunk of the time out of the service. 
And the reason we do that is, is because it's against the backdrop of I am a sinner, that I am willing to humble myself and admit that I am a sinner, that I get to be filled up with the amazing truth that even though that, that is sure, I am a sinner, but I am also more loved than I ever dared imagine. That in Christ, God looks at me and he loves me more than I could ever even love myself. He loves me at my worst all the time. And his opinion of me never changes despite my ups and downs in our relationship. And my, there are times where I'm burning hot with love for Jesus. And there are times where, frankly, I just want to self-indulge my sin. And regardless of what moment I'm in, if I am related to God through Jesus Christ, I am loved and cherished at that moment as much as I will be when I'm in heaven for a billion years, praising God perfectly with every part of my being. Now what that does, see, what that does is, is it means that repentance will not be traumatic. One of the reasons we have such a hard time confessing and repenting, one of the reasons is, is because when we do it, we're jeopardizing our self-worth. Right? Good person. That's what I want to be known as. That's how I want to feel about myself. And, and if I put my, my, my sense of, of satisfaction and joy in my own self-regard and my own self-worth, then when you come to me and you say, yeah, you know, you're kind of a jerk sometimes, I go, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. No, I'm not. I'm a good person. People like me. And you should too. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you <laughs> or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. What Paul is saying is, is even my own conscience, I mean, there's a lot of serial killers sitting in jails with clear consciences, okay? But my conscience is not what matters. What matters is God's conscience. My worth doesn't come from myself. It doesn't come from your opinion of, your, of me or my opinion of myself. Who I am is what God declares about me. His opinion is the one that matters. And when that is rooted into the, the, the core of who you are, you won't be afraid to repent and admit your sin. You'll say to that person, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't know half of it. <laughs> I'm glad you're just pointing that one out. One more. Why is this important? I should be able to do this quickly, right? Because we did it once already. But verses 25 and 26 are an example that Jesus uses as a warning about what happens if you don't pursue reconciliation. He says, your adversary is, is taking you to court. And you should settle quickly with your adversary while you are still on the way. Why? Well, because you still have a chance to change things. You still have some measure of control in the situation. But once this gets to the judge, you no longer have a chance to argue your case. You no longer have a chance to, to seek reconciliation. Because now that has been taken out of your hands and it's put in the hands of the judge. And so you can't manipulate things in any way at all. Now, that's, that's, that's a practical kind of thing. You know, it's good to, to work things out outside of the court system, and that's probably true. 
But more than that, Jesus is saying that our attitude with respect to these broken relationships that need reconciliation, our attitude in those things reflects how we relate to God. This is about, this this illustration is about owing a debt to another person. When we sin, we, we owe a debt to the people we have sinned against. We owe a debt to God as well, and he is the judge. And so, so on the last day, Jesus is saying here that on the last day, God the judge has the right to demand that we pay back the debt. Every single penny must be repaid. All of it. Now, I, I do have to drive this home, friends. I we don't like to talk about judgment. I don't like to talk about judgment. I don't want to scare people into the kingdom of God with threats about judgment. But you see, Jesus is saying here that our willingness to pursue reconciliation is evidence of our belief in the gospel itself. Because if you have been reconciled to God, if you understand that your infinite debt has been paid, if you realize that you owe God a billion dollars, it means nothing to you to have to go to someone else and say, here, here's my 20 bucks. Because you've already been forgiven the greater debt. And your gratitude for that drives you to want to be repentant in your relationships with others and also to be forgiving towards those who have hurt you. If you refuse to do that, how are you going to face God? Listen, on the last day, there will be a judgment day and you and I will stand before God and we will be called to give an account of our lives and we will be called to repay the debt. And if you're standing before him and you cannot say, this, my advocate, is the one who has paid for me, my savior, your son, who is perfect in every way and who willingly died in my place. If you can't say that, you know who you have to turn to then? Your sins are covered either by the blood of Christ or by your own blood. That's what Jesus is saying. And no excuse is going to work. You can't say to Jesus, look, I, you know, this small petty relation, eh, you know, they're kind of difficult. They're kind of a grump. And so I just thought, ah, I got better things to do. And I didn't think it would be such a big deal. Or, I didn't have time, Lord. I I was busy doing all kinds of things. I was busy worshiping you and serving you. Friends, we are right now on the way to court. Right now. This life. This life is a journey on the way to court. We travel through this world, and God's law tells us Be reconciled to your brother or sister. Be reconciled to your adversary. Do you have things in your heart that you need to let go of? Are you attending to these relationships? Have you tried to reconcile them? If you have not done so, how do you think you you have done so with me? So reconciliation with God is urgent. You're you're on the way. And... If you're not a believer, friends, you're, you're on the way right now and your adversary is God himself. And you still, while you can draw breath, you have a chance to humble yourself, to confess your sin, 
utterly and absolutely to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see his arms are open wide to receive you if you're just willing to fall into those arms. See, gospel connection re or sorry, gospel repentance reconnects you to the source of your self-worth and to your source of joy and satisfaction and identity. Because through confession, you are reconnected to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't make repentance a work of... A work of what? Don't make... I'm having a bad talking day. Sorry, everybody, but those, those come once in a while. Don't make it... Don't make it a... a you know, the longer you wait, the worse it's going to taste. Don't make repentance something that tastes bitter in your mouth. Make repentance something that tastes sweet. By going to others through the cross of Jesus and seeing yourself made pure and righteous by him and no one else and nothing else so that you can be truthful about yourself and reconcile yourself to those around you. Let's pray. Father, again, oh, Lord, we are just uh, confronted by, by the depth of your law. How far we have fallen, hey, Lord? If this is a picture of what, what your people were created to be like, my, oh, my, we have fallen so far, but we thank you that you did not leave us in that state, fallen, constantly failing, but rather you came into the muck and mire of our sinful world in Jesus Christ. You got dirtied by it so that you could pull us out of the quicksand we were sinking in. You could pull us out and rescue us and you wash us off with the blood of Jesus, and you make us clean, and then you say, now go. You've been reconciled to me. Go be reconciled to others. Father, may we practice this reconciliation. May we, may we model it for the world in which we live where there is just so much conflict. It is unbelievable. Do this, we pray, Lord, because then the glory of Jesus will shine through. The world will know he is who he says he is. He is the real deal. He is our God and our friend. And in his name we pray, amen. The questions are flying in. Okay, if you're in grade five and six, it is time for sermon breakout. Uh, that happens in the safe families room. You are free to join your teacher there. I've seen lots of kids running. I hope I will see an adult run too. Uh, close enough. They're all pretty much raising themselves anyway, I bet. So, here's my, here's my uh, first question. I was raised that the onus to reconcile was on the offender. What do you do if you and your trusted counsel are confident that you are innocent of any kind of aggression, 
but the other person believes you are very guilty of an offense. Oh, and then I just answered their question. <laughs> that was the next text they sent me. Okay. Uh, do I have to go to them? Can I just forgive them in my heart? That's, that I haven't answered. Um, so, Love covers over a multitude of sins. Like, if you've been wronged, love covers over a multitude of sins. You do not need to... Anybody who's been in a relationship, like a close relationship, like married or, or, or you know, you're raised in a family, there's all kinds of slights and, like, you get nicked. You get, you get cut a little bit. Um, and sometimes they hurt. Like, paper cuts are small cuts, but they can hurt a lot. Um, but love can cover a multitude of sins. When we, when we are all sinners, we, we, and we all admit that and know Jesus and trust in Jesus, then we can allow love to exist between people who are constantly, and I don't mean like moment by moment, but constantly, every day in the sense, sinning against one another. We don't have to bring up everything that happens. But at the same time, if there is something that is serious, that you cannot allow love to cover. And when I say that, what I mean by allowing love to cover a multitude of sins, what I mean by that is saying, I, so forgiveness is a refusal to cause someone to pay the debt. In a sense, you're absorbing the debt yourself. You're saying, I'm not going to them and making them pay. But if you, okay, doodle, okay. Stop your questions. <laughs> if you, um, but if you, uh, if you can't let it go, then you're not even able to forgive them in your heart. That means you have to go to them and you have to find a way to reconcile. See, letting it go means not bringing it up to yourself anymore, not bringing it up to them anymore, not bringing it up to, bringing it up to others anymore. That's what it means to, to forgive a person in your heart. And probably the person you have to most like work the most at in terms of not bringing it up is yourself. You have to refuse to, to dwell on that wrong again and bring it up to yourself and, and suck on the, the anger and righteous uh, indignation that you feel. You have to say, no, I'm, forget, I'm going to forget that. That doesn't mean that the incident is suddenly something you cannot recall anymore. It means that you're not going to remember it in the way the Bible describes memory and remembering something. God remembers his covenant, meaning God acts on this covenant that he had with us, right? So when, you're, when you forget, when you forgive and forget, it's not that you remembered that you, or you no longer remember that you were hurt. It means that you're not going to act according to being hurt. Now, I cannot take that long to answer every question, I guess, right? Uh, okay, what else we got here? My, you, your questions are long too. Okay, what, <laughs> what will you say to this? In the past, whenever... I felt something might be off between me and someone else, whether I, hurt, I felt hurt or I, I think I hurt them. I would always approach them and see if anything needed to be sorted out. I observed that many times doing this, that it stirs up a lot of defensiveness, anger, and awkwardness within people, even if you approach them gently. And I noticed this with almost everyone I know, believers or not. Now I generally avoid bringing anything up with people because it's more trouble than it's worth. And doesn't seem to actually help anything. In fact, it seems sometimes to make things worse. Wow, that's a bummer. Um, it's not a question, though. Uh, so I could just say that and, and leave it. But I, I do want to speak to it just a little bit. Um, the reason reconciliation is hard 
is because the gospel hasn't driven deep in a lot of us. Sorry, that's, that's a harsh thing to say to a church, a room full of church people. But that's why you come to church every week, is because the gospel doesn't, it takes a long time for the gospel to sink deep into us, that we become truly gospel people, magnanimous people who are quick to repent and quick to forgive. And so I'm sad that your attempts have been uh, kind of a train wreck <laughs> uh, re, uh, in, a, in the past, but I, I encourage you to don't, not to stop, but to continue to find ways to reconcile with people when you think that there is something off with them, because that's the gospel call. And sometimes the person you're talking to, the gospel hasn't sunk very deeply in them either. And so this conflict that you are in and this attempt at reconciliation that you are going to make is an opportunity for both of you to practice gospel relationships better, to have it be pounded deep into you. And maybe the first thing you say to them is like, I think something's off with us. Uh, and I don't know if it's all you or if it's all me, but maybe the first thing we got to do is we got to pray that God will humble both of us for this conversation and make us open and, and I would just say, like, especially if you are in a, a marriage relationship where you're constantly going like this and you need to find ways, one of the great things you can do is you can remember your wedding day. Uh, and what I mean by that is remember that this person at some point in their life was crazy enough to say, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And so uh, perhaps, perhaps you can give them the benefit of the doubt when you step into that conflict, that maybe they weren't as serious, like they weren't trying to get you the way you think they were trying to get you. Maybe they acted just inconsiderately or maybe um, they're having a bad day. Like I, I've been having some health things recently and I was in a bit of a pain the other day and I was just really short with Jess. And uh, so I had to come up to her later in the day and said, I, I'm sorry for how I've behaved, uh, I, but it's because of my pain thing. And she goes, yeah, I totally get it. Like she, she understood. Um, I'm babbling. What does reconciliation look like with people you have to f have firm boundaries because of unhealthy, harmful behaviors? Yeah, I mean, that, that's one that always comes up. I think I did sort of talk about that last week, but I'll say this again. Um, reconciliation in this life is not always possible, especially full reconciliation. But you can certainly have the kind of partial rec reconciliation that comes from saying, to someone who you maybe can no longer be in personal uh, relationships with because it's harmful and toxic, uh, you can at least do the reconciliation of saying to that person, look, I, I, I'm not going to hold this against you, but for your benefit, for your benefit, I am going to say that we, we need to have a separation of some type for, for the sake of uh, for the sake of my health and for the sake of your health. So Jesus says, uh, in, or sorry, Paul says in Ephesians 4, um, what does he say again? Mark, what does he say in Ephesians 4? You don't even know what I'm trying to remember probably, but what am I trying to uh, Huh? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Sometimes the thing you need to say in order that it will benefit those who listen is, you need to stay away from me. 
Sometimes that's gospel love. Just like with parents, sometimes gospel love is you need to go to your room. <laughs> right? Um, okay, I'm going to stop there. I will try